Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. Thankfully, conditions out there have improved a bit so that Catholics in many dioceses, including us in Bridgeport, have seen our parishes start to open up for public masses. Things still clearly have a way to go before they get back to some semblance of normal. In the meantime, you can help Veritas bring faithful Catholic programming to your home, your car, your phone. I'd like to thank those of you who have made gifts to help us keep this important work going. For everyone, it's easy. Just go to www.veritascatholic.com. On today's show, Bishop Frank will talk about how the reopening of public masses has gone so far and what's ahead. And then, the USCCB was supposed to have their spring meeting next week. That's canceled due to the pandemic, but Bishop Frank will tell us more about the conference and how it works. And we'd like to thank our weekly sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum. Please visit the museum online at kofcmuseum.org and check out its weekly webinars. These programs are free, enjoyable, and educational. Again, kofcmuseum.org. Okay, thanks for joining us for another week of Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee, and I'm very happy to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, as always, it's great to be with you, my friend. Uh, great to be with you, Excellency. So we have, uh, we have some updates. Masses are open again here in Bridgeport. Um, and just to be clear, churches have been open this whole time, and we've had many parishes offer confession and, and uh, opportunity for private prayer. And so we've had phase one for public masses in effect, and um, mm -hmm. now you have just last week uh, introduced phase two. So... Would you like to talk about how things are going sure. and, and about sure. phase two? Sure, I'm delighted. I'm, I'm grateful to the Lord. First of all, I'm grateful for all the pastors who cooperated with phase one, which, as you, as you know, were celebrating masses outdoors. And we chose that venue because it is the safest venue of all since there's great circulation of air. Uh, the Lord was so good. The weather on the weekends was perfect. Pentecost was an absolutely perfect, picture-perfect day. So, um, and if you recall, part of the reason, not only for safety, but was to introduce some processes that need to be in some way practiced and perfected so that when we come inside, that that is already done. So setting up volunteers and training them and giving them the proper equipment practicing Holy Communion, and to do that extremely carefully, prudently, and reverently, and also a registration system, because, you know, the seating is limited. So we want to make sure that everyone is treated fairly. So with all of that basically underway, uh, on the Solemnity of Corpus Christi, which is June 13th, 14th, um, we are able to enter back into our church buildings. And there's a window being created for a few weeks, so a pastor can make a decision to enter in when he believes he has all of the processes in place, and quite frankly, all the materials he needs to sanitize his church in between masses. So I'm excited. My gosh, it's been three months, right? Feels so, like I mean, that's three feels years, like a long three time. eternities. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. of course it has been. It's like missing your family, and it is for all this time. So, I mean, and I understand people's frustration, and I understand how people, it has been a suffering. Right. It has been. But like you and I have spoken about before, it really is a fundamental 
question of protecting those who are vulnerable, human life, the elderly and the sick and those with pre-existing um, pre conditions. So lots of dioceses and archdioceses are coming back into their churches. Thank God. Thank God. Yes. But no matter where it happens, Steve, there are fundamental challenges for two reasons. Because when you are in an enclosed space, duration of time and stability of presence in proximity are the two factors that can cause a contagion to become a, what they call a super spreading event. Because unlike places where you mill around or move in church, you're sitting in one place and you're sitting for a significant period of time. So I think we have a great process in place. I do, the pastors have been tremendous. And you know, it's, a, it's about you know, social distancing, it's, um, it's sanitization, it's wearing face masks, it's being prudent. But I'm excited, I'm tremendously excited that we're taking another step towards whatever the new normal is going to be. Right, yeah. Um, so what you're doing is you, are, you have issued guidelines, just like in phase one, and each, mm -hmm. it's up to each pastor to come up with a, a workable plan that's safe and, uh, and will work for his own parish. Correct. Correct. The norms are universal in application insofar as how you sanitize a church, how you socially distance, all that stuff. Everyone observes the same thing. What a pastor needs to determine is, for example, what does social distancing mean in his church? Like where can a person or a family unit sit together? And how do you make sure you have correct, correct space around them? So the capacity of each church is different. And also the volunteers. I mean, a lot of parishes in our diocese, Steve, as you know, have relied on wonderful people, ushers and ministers, who some are a bit older. Right. So the question is, should they be the ones to help out right now? Right. Or does a pastor need to really kind of muster up some of the younger adults to help out and then train them to be able to do this. Right. So there's work to be, so that's where the variation is, I think, right? Yeah. The other thing too is pastors have to make a choice of whether or not they want to continue outdoor masses because the governor a while back, not long ago, changed his executive order. So now, for example, outdoors, the, the, the maximum amount of people to be assembled went from a 50 people to 150 people. And cars, he, the governor determined there would be no predetermined limit on the cars to be assembled provided that they are distanced and have easy access. He also changed the maximum capacity in any place of worship to be either 25% of the fire code occupancy or 100 people. So for most of our churches, they already have their number, but we have some really big churches. Yes. So in those churches, you can go over 50 people easily and socially distance. So that's another step forward in this evolution. So that's all positive news. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. And it couldn't come sooner for a lot of people. I mean, the world, it's, it's only been about two months or three months, but the world has changed in drastic ways. And, you know, just from a macro perspective, now we have 
40 million people unemployed and, you know, people have been pent up in their homes largely for, mm-hmm. you know, 10 weeks. We've got now mm-hmm. this horrible murder of George Floyd followed by these destructive riots around the country. I mean, mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. Excellency, we, mm-hmm. we, we need the Eucharist. We need the sacraments so that I feel like so that we Catholics can strengthen ourselves again and then we can let our light shine before men and, and, right. and lead society. Right. I, right. I absolutely agree. I think George Floyd's death is, is just an awful tragedy. It's a, 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 an act of, of just blatant racist injustice that needs to be addressed, right? Um, and a lot of the destruction we are seeing is both in reaction to the injustice of racism, but also a lot of the inequality that exists in our country that the pandemic now has exacerbated so dramatically. Right. So of those 40 million people who lost their jobs, the vast majority of them are day laborers and workers. And many of them are those who don't have as much education as others who are affluent. And disproportionately affects the Latino and Hispanic and African American communities. So those communities are, are really hurting. So that frustration is, I think what we're seeing is, it's just boiling over. It's all of these factors coming together. Now, violence breeds violence. Violence is never acceptable in that term. Right. right? That will not breed the honesty, transparency, conversion, and repentance our society needs to undergo. Right. So that every person from the unborn to those who naturally die are respected, are cared for, and have the basics they need to live a dignified life in Christ. Yes. That is a conversion this society needs to undergo. Yes. But violence is not gonna do that. It's not gonna, it's not gonna foster that. As much as I understand people's frustration, violence, violence is not the answer. Right, it never So is. we need to pray, right? It isn't, Steve. We need to pray for this conversion. You know, you know I, in my homily on Pentecost, I spoke of the new normalcy. Well, what is the new normalcy? So we're coming back into our churches. Let's be frank, shall we? <laughs> the old normalcy was a society that did not respect one another. And if I had a different opinion from you, I didn't dialogue with you, I tore you down. In social media, I found a place to just eviscerate your reputation. That was what was considered normal. What was considered normal? A society where we looked aside at racism and discrimination and the social and economic inequalities and we just went merrily on our way. What was the new normal? What was the normal? Even in our church, we've been dividing up into camps as if like St. Paul, it's me or Apollos. No, 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 it's Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. It's all about the Lord Jesus. Let's get that straight. Right. So maybe the old normalcy is not worth going back to. Yeah. And maybe this is a moment of tremendous grace. But we have to pray for the end of the violence because it is just very destructive. But we do have to pray for justice as well. So I didn't mean to go into this, 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 kind of a diatribe here, but it's so timely to your point. The Eucharist is what brings us together and heals us. Right. Yeah. So as we look for uh, the new normal, 
going forward, it's certainly not going to look like the old normal with regards to public worship, at least for a long, long time. So we're going to have the um, socially distanced indoor masses. We'll have probably a continuation of outdoor masses as well in many parishes. Yes. yes. And then um, it's possible that a lot of pastors will also continue to live stream masses. They should. They should. And I'm hoping and praying that many parishes will make that a permanent uh, evangelical outreach. And the reason is obvious. There will come a day, please God, very soon, where the obligation to come to Sunday Mass will be reinstated. I think the criteria for that is simple. We're going to obligate people to come to Mass when every person who wishes to come to Mass can be accommodated. Because to require them or a person to come and not have an ability for them to serve is unjust. It's fundamentally unjust. But there will always be people who can't come, who are sick, Mm -hmm. or elderly, or disabled, or quite frankly, are just temporarily ill. So why not allow them an opportunity to spiritually commune with the Lord and join in some live fashion with the community that's praying in church? I think this could be one of the lasting benefits of the pandemic, right, for most of our churches. Yeah, mm-hmm. it allows the pastors to continue to reach a, a larger audience. Um, and then, of course, for those who can make it to Mass, they should never consider the online or the TV or the radio as a substitute for actually going. Oh my gosh, no. There's no such thing. It, right. That would be like saying my mother uh, would cook her typical feast on a holiday and invite my relatives to come and have them stand outside on the driveway. <laughs> okay, so they, they could smell it from afar, but they can't taste it. What would be, what, what's the purpose? <laughs> right. You know, so, so in the end, of course, we want to eat the body and blood of the Lord because that's the, the food that sustains us. Yeah. But you know what? I mean, the truth is, we say there is a law of obligation, but quite frankly, for someone who has encountered the Lord Jesus. You don't need a law of obligation. Right. They would come. You would run. That's why there's so much pain among so many people because they are literally hungering for Christ's body and blood. They don't need for me to tell them you have to be obliged to come to mass. They'd be the first ones at the door. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, uh, you know, we... um, so Veritas, we helped out um, up here in Ridgefield, where I live. Uh, Monsignor Royal is the pastor of uh, St. Mary's here in town. And mm-hmm. he's, uh, as you know very well, he's a, a holy and great priest. And so he asked us if we would help him out with, uh, with the masses this past Sunday. And we did. And just so, I mean, besides the radio side of things, we broadcast the, the mass uh, for him on Sunday morning but besides the radio side of things just watching the coordination among all the different people who had to it's a lot of work (laughs) absolutely first of all monsignor royal is one of the finest priests i've ever met so just for the record yeah and um i read an article recently that covered i forget where it was i think he was an alert yeah in alatea i think Right. Oh, um, yes, that's right. Because I had a, a Google alert. Right. Yeah. 
And yeah, and I read it. It was, yes, stupendous. Yeah. But again, but you saw firsthand, Steve, to make all of these transitions is just a lot of coordination if you want to keep people safe, if you right. want to, and you want a reverent celebration. You, you just don't want to celebrate it for the sake of celebrating to say you did it. I mean, this is worship of the, of the living God. It has to be reverent and sacred and dignified. Being outside is a big challenge to do. Yeah. You know what's also interesting, to your point, um, I finally realized this a few days ago. There are people now who will live stream mass in their parish, and then they have developed two or three other priests or bishops whom, for whatever reason, they are attracted or find fruitful their preaching, and what they do is they will attend mass in their parish, and then they will listen to the homilies of the same Sunday in different venues. Yeah, isn't that great? So uh, one person said it bluntly to me, says, this guarantees me a good homily every Sunday. <laughs> what an interesting, but I thought to myself, what an interesting variation of something to be thought about as perhaps a hidden opportunity coming out of this time of tremendous suffering. I mean, what about if we did ask five, six, seven priests to be guest preachers and to be able to post their homilies every Sunday so that people, even those who don't come to church, even those who need to evangelize, could stumble upon them and listen and perhaps be fed spiritually. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, I, I And I admit also that I've been regularly checking out the... We, we listen to yours every Sunday, Excellency, but then I've also been um, going back and not watching the whole Mass, but listening to Monsignor Royal and Father Czech and some others. So Yeah, exactly the point. Yeah, and, and, and our styles are also different because preaching yes. the, a good preacher preaches to himself. Hmm. And you preach to yourself, always preach to yourself, at least this is my understanding of homiletics, because it reflects your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, which is different from a sermon that teaches a theological truth hmm. of which you may or may not necessarily be faithful to. And therefore, yeah. we as Catholics, in our worship, the church asks us to give homilies, not sermons. Right. And therefore, the whole purpose of a homily is to allow the person who is listening to have that same experience during the week of applying the gospel to his life or her life, yeah. to deepen one's relationship. Then there is another equally important opportunity to learn about the faith. And I think we as Catholics need, coming out of this pandemic, to figure out ways perhaps online and in person to better catechize our adult um, sisters and brothers, to just teach them what, it, what the Catholic faith teaches. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And just for those who are listening, many people I'm sure know, but the difference between a homily and a sermon is that the homily is about the readings and the gospel of the day. A sermon is just a, a topic that the priest chooses to teach about. Right, right. And, and there are moments of sermons, like for example, on the Feast of Corpus Christi, I would be shocked if a priest did not speak about the mystery of the Eucharist. 
which is at the heart of the celebration. So there is a doctrinal piece to it. Of course there is. Right. Especially in a time when growing numbers of Catholics do not understand what the real presence is. And quite frankly, those who do not believe in the real presence, many of them don't believe it because they don't believe the church believes it. Right. Now, let's consider that for a moment. Right? Yeah. So, so there is a moment for that too, even in homilies. But generally speaking, it's a reflection on the life and ministry of Jesus and how that impacts my life. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then I just want to come back to, um, to the, the planning for, um, for public worship. It, I get the impression that government authorities are, I hope, have been making plans in case we see a second wave of COVID-19 this fall. And so, Excellency, you and your team, you're also looking ahead to see if, God forbid, that happens, if we can continue things. Yes, yes, I must tell you, um, recently I was in a presentation where an epidemiologist um, gave an excellent overview. And in her educated opinion, she believes a second wave is very likely at the end of the fall when the weather cools off and the virus in that environment is more, is more virulent. But the other thing now that has begun to tremendously worry me are all of these mass gatherings of people in protests. Yep. Who, even though many of them are wearing masks, thank God, but they are not socially distancing and I am deathly afraid that the virus will now, in a few weeks, will have another resurgence that would be awful that would be terrible so i'm hoping and praying that's another reason why we have to find another way for the legitimate concerns of those who are protesting to be met without necessarily the way it's being done because they are risking their own safety by doing this i think particularly in the midst of a pandemic yeah Mm -hmm. well i would like to um just take a quick moment and just to say Thank you for your leadership through all of this, um, because you know it's very easy for uh, folks who aren't in a position of responsibility to um, criticize or talk about how they would do things differently. But truth is, you know, Excellency, your decisions have consequences, and and you're making those decisions on the fly in the midst of the crisis as it's unfolding, which is mm-hmm. I I can only imagine an incredibly difficult position to be in. So. Thank you very much for your leadership. Well, thank you, Steve. I mean, I, I very much appreciate that encouragement. I must confess, I am blessed here in the Diocese of Bridgeport. My colleagues in the Curia, my closest collaborators, are some of the finest people I've ever ministered with in my whole life. Hmm. And that's 33 years of priesthood and 14 years as a bishop. Hmm. So I rely on their counsel and their advice. And, and they are very open with me, and as they should be. and they, they tell me where they believe what I'm suggesting may have some problems. So it's a collaborative effort. But um, Mama used to say, in order to be able to put your head on the pillow at night, you have to be able to follow your conscience, listen to good advice, make your decision, and leave everything else to Jesus. Yes. And while I can't tell you I've been sleeping tremendously well, <laughs> I've not been sleeping any worse than I normally do. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a sign that I'm at least at peace that the Lord is, the Lord is guiding this. So thank you. Thank yeah, you. No, of course. And uh, 
Before we go to break, you also had a saying that your mother used to tell you in Italian about oh, one step at a time. Oh, she has a thousand sayings. Which one now? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Okay, this is it now. Okay. Giva piano, va lontano, e arriva sano. Which, in colloquial English, would be, he or she who goes one step at a time gets to the destination in one piece. Excellent. So, in, in a sense, that's what we're doing. Right? Yes, definitely. So, on that note, let's take a break. And then, when we come back, we'll talk about the USCCB. Catholic Radio Works. And now, we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Okay, welcome back. This is Let Me Be Frank, featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano. Uh, so, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Your Excellency, you were originally scheduled to be getting ready to go to the USCCB Spring Meeting, that's canceled now due to the pandemic. Um, but still, uh, you can, for all of us, you can shed some light on the conference. Tell us about the structure and the responsibilities of the USCCB. I- uh, yes. Oh, see, the USCCB, this is the first time that I am aware of that the conference has canceled an in-person meeting since, I believe, its inception. So it is historic that we're not meeting in person. And there is some question about even November's meeting. As you know, we meet twice a year. Right. Right. So we, there's a fall meeting and a spring meeting. The fall meeting is always in Baltimore because that's the premier see. It is the first Catholic see in the United States. And we always go to the same place. Um, so the hotels become very familiar. It, it, it's, it's almost as if you're not really traveling. It's, it's, it's a strange sort of dynamic because for as far back as I can remember, we've been going there. And then the spring meeting travels around the country. So if I remember, we were supposed to be in Detroit this, this year. And that has been, of course, obviously uh, canceled. The, the Episcopal conferences are a fairly new reality in the Catholic Church, coming out of the Second Vatican Council. Their purpose is to allow ongoing dialogue, build fraternity among bishops, and to create an apparatus where the bishops can react as a body in a country to issues, pastoral concerns, et cetera, et cetera. There is a teaching function as well, but that teaching function is circumscribed, right, in large part because the work of the Episcopal Conference, when it comes to teaching and matters of faith and morals and all the rest, needs, or discipline of sacraments, needs recognitio from Rome. So it's interesting, much of what the conference does is more suggestive than legislative for bishops. Um, for example, the Dallas Charter is one of the most of famous, most famous of all the works that came out of the conference mm-hmm. to a real pastoral tragedy. Right. And the norms of the Dallas Charter have force of law because Rome approved them. Not okay. because we passed them, right? Okay. Because Rome approved them as particular law in the United States. 
Prior to the Episcopal conferences, you know, we had councils and synods, national councils, like the Baltimore ones that created the Baltimore Catechism and that every parish has a parochial school, all that stuff. But those are different realities than the Episcopal meetings, the Episcopal conference meetings. They are different. They have, they have to be invoked, right, approved by Rome. Technically, the Pope in a synod, a national synod, is its head. Mm-hmm. And what it passes becomes law when Rome approves them, when the Pope approves them. So they're a different reality than what we would consider the ordinary business meetings of the conference. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so just again for everyone listening, the Dallas Charter was in 2001 or 2002, right, Excellency? That was the response mm-hmm. and the plan, the plan in response to the, um, the child abuse crisis. Right, the evil the of child abuse, uh, without yeah. a doubt, right. Right. And so, and so you're saying that Rome, Rome approved the U.S. Uh, bishop's plan, which was very thorough and seems like it was a good plan. Um, yes. Rome yes. approved it. Did it become a, a, a rule for the greater church then at that point? Well, that was the synod that the Pope had. Okay. Remember on, on the question of the abuse crisis and some of the norms that came out of that, including vost estis, which governs bishops. But the Dallas Charter, see, it's very particular. The Dallas Charter has norms attached to the Charter, and it's the norms that were approved by Rome. They are the law that one must follow. Okay. And, I, and I believe the, 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 the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young Adults that we follow was a model for many other parts of the world right. that have all been struggling with this. So, for example, the translations of the sacraments uh, the translation for the Liturgy of the Hours that we are approving in pieces. All of that gains recognitio from Rome. Okay. Right? Um, and there are other things, too, that require the, 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 uh, the approval of Rome. Otherwise, they could not be enforced. They, they could not be imposed. Right. And, and Rome um, has a, a seat at the table at the USCCB through the Apostolic Nuncio. Absolutely who always is invited to give an address. And my sense is that um, the Pope makes clear to all of the nuncios around the world what his priorities are. He addresses them as a body once a year. And Archbishop Pierre, um, who is our uh, nuncio, um, has given some spectacular talks, I must confess, um, the talk on young people was just spot on. I sat there, I was amazed. He synthesized the synod on youth and young, young people and young adults, and he just, and he brought it down to some really manageable actions that he basically laid before all the bishops and said, this is now something for you to discern and try to implement in your diocese. He gave a talk about priests and the renewal of priestly life, which includes bishops too, right? That I thought was also very well done. So he does, he addresses us each time we gather. And we send a letter to the Holy Father every time we gather. Okay. So there's a mutual recognition. See, in the end, Peter can never be far when the bishops gather together. Right. Because even though there's a reality and a collegiality among the Episcopal, the Episcopal members of the college, the college really cannot act without Peter in right. any substantial or meaningful way. Yeah. 
uh, I want to take a look at the USCCB's structure. So there's an executive mm-hmm. committee. Is that what it's called? I know there's there a president. There is a president, okay. yes. Mm-hmm. And a vice president, a treasurer, and secretary. And Archbishop Gomez is president. Yes. And I must Los confess, Angeles. Yes, of Los Angeles is the archbishop of the largest archdiocese in the country. Hmm. It's one of the, I think, the 10 largest in the world. Wow. There's over 5 million Catholics in the archdiocese of Los Angeles. It's huge. There yeah. are countries smaller, <laughs> many countries smaller. I, I, and I uh, had the great privilege to get to know Archbishop Gomez during the Synod on Youth in Rome. We were one of the delegates. Right. He was, I was. Extraordinarily fine man. Right, very fine man. And what struck me most about Archbishop Gomez is that he has a pastoral heart. Hmm. You know, you could easily become overwhelmed with, you know, the archdiocese of that, that magnitude, 400 parishes. I mean, it's huge. Right. But he tremendously pastoral, and a tremendous pastoral insight hmm. into young adults. That, and of course, we were kind of like half sequestered. It's, it's interesting. At the Synod, um, all the bishops from America, there were seven of us, we were at the North American College. Yes. And we all had dinner together, apart from everyone else. So we really got to know each other very well, I think. It was, it was, a, it was a tremendous opportunity. It was a great blessing for me. Yeah. So yes, there's an executive, and then there are the standing committees. Okay. And some are extremely active and important. You know, the Committee on Doctrine, mm-hmm. on Canonical Affairs, on Evangelization and Catechesis. There's one on safe environment and the protection. I mean, there's many of them. Right. It kind of mirrors what a diocesan curator would be involved with. Okay. And I am a member of the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis because that's where my love is. I have served on others, you know, laity and family life because of youth and young adults. And I've served on doctrine as well. But I must confess, as the subcommittee uh, of the catechism's chair, that takes a tremendous amount of work. So I thought it'd be better just to focus in on a few things. And I very much enjoy that work. And again, a lot of the staff at the USCCB are just, just stellar individuals, tremendous people, competent in all the, of what they're doing. And so therefore there's a great mix. You know, I enjoy the work. I yeah. do very much. Mm-hmm. So for the spring meetings and then also for the committees of the USCCB in general, uh, there's uh, bishops obviously involved, um, priests and lay people as well, or? Yes. I mean, the members of the conference are the bishops. Right. But then you have the staff of the USCCB. You have observer delegates from many congregations and institutes and apostolates that come. They observe. Um, there's a, um, a, a lay council that have laity from around the country who are elected to it, who are advisory to all of the bishops, and they give input on everything the bishops are gonna be reviewing, and that has a lay chair who also addresses the bishops. Okay. So there is a, a nice mix. There really is, a nice, and of course there are a lot of bishops in the United States, right? A couple hundred? If everybody I... came to the, oh, at least, I would think almost to 300. Wow. If you consider retired bishops who can come, Hmm. They cannot vote, but they can come, they can speak. So no, it's a, it's a big gathering. Yeah. And, you know, it's, a, it's interesting. If you reflect on the conference, 
you know, it can be criticized that it's bureaucratic, in part because we are so big as a church here in the United States. But there are advantages of being big because you have resources that other conferences that are smaller do not have. On the other hand, smaller Episcopal conferences have the luxury and the ability to meet in a more flexible way right. for bishops to really get to know each other. So like everything else in life, Steve, right? There are trade-offs. There are trade-offs. Yes. Here and there. <clears throat> yeah. One, one, one last thing about the conferences before I forget. Okay? Yes. And that is part of the reason the conference exists is because there are many dioceses that are very small who don't have the resources of very large dioceses and archdioceses. And the conference is a way by which they can get resources and assistance otherwise they would not have. Hmm. And there's a value, tremendous value to that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I, I wonder if um, you talk about the, the gigantic conferences like the U.S., and then there mm -hmm. are obviously smaller conferences like, I'm trying to think of a small, like Portugal or, or a small mm -hmm. country. Um, I wonder if there's, if, if a local conference like the U.S. can have enough clout to influence other conferences. So could the United States or even say, you know, Germany uh, make changes to their practices in their territory that might get picked up by other regions? Ah, that's the famous question now. The famous German synod that's underway. <laughs> and a lot of the press that's going on about somehow this synod is being convoked in part to address questions of faith and morals. Right. Yes. <clears throat> okay, so let's go back to what synodality really means. Uh, synodality is the opportunity for the leadership of the church, in this case the bishops, mm -hmm always under the supervision and guidance of the Holy Father, to address pastoral issues right, that are current and urgent, always in the light of Catholic faith. So a synod in and of itself is, doesn't exist to reformulate the faith. It is meant to help apply the perennial an unchanging Catholic faith to changing circumstances of contemporary society. Right. So synodality is not democratizing the church. It doesn't work that way. Because the reason is, not only are we hierarchical, but quite frankly, it's all about Jesus. It's all about his divine power and his divine truth. It's not what I think, you think, we think, we all agree. Nobody cares what I think, you think, and we all agree. Right. <laughs> we don't know, buddy. Right. It's all. And if you do care about it, the point of the matter is that it's always got to be seen in light of the truth that Jesus himself taught that has been brought to us as a living reality. Yes. Unfortunately, we live in a time where too many people consider themselves to be entitled. And too many people have come to the conclusion that their opinion is truth. Well, it's time that those individuals come to realize that their opinions are opinions. The truth comes to us, particularly divine truth comes to us from the Lord, Savior, and Master of us all. And that's just the way it is. And we could stand on our heads. That is where it will always be that way. For there is only one God. 
Yes. And as Philippians tells us, to that God, every knee will bend in the heavens, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. Period. Amen. Amen. So I have no idea if some of the news media and what's being reported in Germany and other places are true, not true, what they plan, who knows? You know, when you're given human beings coming together, but the bottom line is there will be a lesson to be learned there then. There'll have to be a lesson to be learned. Yeah. Yeah. We have, so the, the synods, um, like conferences, are helpful, but we, we shouldn't put them on equal footing with the hierarchical construction of the church, which is the faithful, led by the priests, governed by the bishops, under the Pope, on, in the structure that was given to us by the Holy Spirit, or by Jesus and protected uh, right. by the Holy Spirit. Remember, right, because the fonts of truth in the Catholic Church are scripture, okay, and the tradition, which is a living reality that includes the entire Christian life, most especially prayer and the liturgy and the sacraments, and all of that under the guidance of the magisterium, which is what you're referring to, which is those who have been chosen by the Lord to share in this governance, to be the custodians of the truth. Now, that is not to say at times there isn't division among bishops. Of course there are. That is why Peter is always a part of the process, because Peter the function of Peter, the Holy Father, and all his successes since Peter, he is the conservator, he is the guardian, he is the protector and defender of the truth. And therefore, um, any national synod cannot meet without him, cannot issue anything without his approval, and it would be very unfortunate if any Episcopal conference went farther than the Holy Father had asked them to do because in the end, the Holy Father would have to correct it, right. which would not be good for collegiality, right? right? Two thirds of the function of preserving the truth in its purity is learning to listen and be docile. Okay. Hmm. Zeal can lead one to error when it is not willing to be tempered by listening and docility of spirit. And the history is wrought with individuals who have had unbridled zeal and have caused tremendous damage. Uh, in, in, in religion, in politics, in everywhere, in everywhere, yeah, everywhere. Sure. in every religious tradition too, it's not just Christians. So, right. so I think, um, you know, <laughs> I, I wonder to myself, Steve, what will the lingering effects of this pandemic be? Perhaps on a spiritual plane, it may give the world an opportunity to understand the frailty of human life, its preciousness, and the frailty of everything we have constructed as human society. And even the fact that we are the, not the masters of our own destiny that there is an inherent need to recognize he who is far greater than all of us and perhaps to follow what he has asked us all along and how to live. And maybe if we did that, there would be no protests in the street. 
There would not be so many people hurting with very little hope, right, for the immediate future. You know, I I, I think um, this question of synodality, I know people have been asking questions about it, but I honestly see as a logical consequence of who we are because it allows both the people of God and the leaders of the church to discuss issues, to raise questions, but always under the guidance of the Holy Father because the truth is the truth and will always be the truth, regardless of whether I like it or not, agree with it or not, the truth is the truth. Right. Yep. Is that frank enough? <laughs> That's pretty frank. <laughs> it's, uh, it's such a good reminder because um, not only do the members of the conferences need to be um, docile and listen, but we, the laity, also we need to, we need more silence and we need to listen more. Uh, I talk specifically about myself, especially, um, you know, and, and the docility, right, to understand. Yeah, and, I mean, amen. And Steve, and the bishops, always in their examination of conscience, need to listen to God's people. And a perfect example of that is, unfortunately, to a great cost, a number of bishops were deaf to the voices of lay people when it came to the horror, the sin, the scandal of abuse in our midst. Right. If they had listened and responded we would not be suffering to the extent that we are suffering now. So the docility goes both ways. And there is no fear for someone in authority to be docile and listen. There is nothing to be afraid of. Because as I said, the truth will always prevail. It has to because the truth is a living person. It's not a dead book. It's a living person in Jesus Christ, a living tradition he animates. So it goes both ways, I think, both ways. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, definitely, definitely. The lay, the lay people have a co-responsibility within the church. Yes, yes, um, very much so. Excellent. Okay, so let's, uh, let's take one more break, and when we come back, we'll answer questions. We need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Uh, Excellency, each break today, we've been talking about um, George Floyd and and the, the terrible thing that the his murder and and the the consequences of that um so to today's question actually is surprisingly i think related and uh it's a good one so the question was emailed in and asks um how should we understand god's mercy with regard to his justice there seems to be an emphasis on his mercy these days and less on hell but there is a hell and there are people there so if you could please uh explain excellency well, I think the first thing we need to realize is that as human beings, for us to hold justice and mercy in perfect balance is uh, it, almost an impossibility. Uh, for God, it is not. For God, it is perfectly possible because it is perfectly 
an outflow from who he is. Okay, Justice is to give your neighbor his or her due. That is an outgrowth of love, which is to will someone's good. So a true loving person is always just. But there's frailty and sin in the world. And therefore, mercy tempers justice by allowing a person who truly recognizes his faults or sins an opportunity to begin again, to pick oneself up and move on. So they are not inimical. They are basically, they are, they are two sides of one coin. So um, we chatted about this offline. You mentioned uh, Scott Hahn's presentation about the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes. You may want to share that now with our listeners too, because it's, it's your insight there. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's Scott Hans, and so he, um, he contrasts God's mercy as shown in the Old Covenant, which is leniency and pity and forgiveness, with the New Covenant, in which there's a marriage between justice and mercy. They're not opposed to each other, and this marriage of justice and mercy is demonstrated um, on the cross of Jesus at Calvary. And he says, this is the most powerful display of justice on our behalf, at the same time, it's clearly the most powerful demonstration of God's mercy. Right, right. And therefore, for us, there may be an emphasis, certainly Pope Francis has made a tremendous emphasis on mercy, but how is that different from, for example, St. Faustina's revelations of the mercy of God mm -hmm. that calls for conversion and repentance Mercy is an opportunity to be reborn in God's love, right? Um, Pope Francis is in part very much concerned that the world has come to understand Christianity as solely an exercise of justice without an opportunity for those who are fallen or those who are broken or those who are lost to find any hope of a welcome. Not an excuse for what they did, not a pass for them to continue to do what is sinful and destructive, but as an entree, almost like the Good Samaritan. So a person can be brought to healing. But in the end, emphases come and go. The reality is they are intricately linked. You cannot have one without the other. Right. As a Christian. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and our actions, Excellency, they do have consequences right if there's no hell it kind of doesn't really matter what we do here but the mercy comes in because we can't bridge the gap on our own uh sinfulness and the you know between Correct. our sinfulness and the perfection of heaven jesus does that Correct. Correct. we still have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling right it, it, with anxious concern right yes the scripture says the, the truth of the matter is no one can earn their way to eternal life it is a gift it is a gracious gift. So therefore, just that alone may help us to understand that justice and mercy are interrelated realities for us. Yeah. Otherwise, we become Pelagians again. Yeah. Right. So, it's an excellent question. And as for the question of hell, it's interesting. The question of hell, the question of the devil, we live in a world where we have sanitized evil, we joke about the presence of, of the evil one, 
And that is all very spiritually dangerous. Because there is a Satan, there is a devil, there are demons, there is a hell, and one day we should talk about that in one of our podcasts, not to frighten people, but just as a sobering reality, a reminder of what, re- what is real right. and what is true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because even um, St. Faustina, who is the, um, the bringer of the message of mercy, right, with the divine mercy, even she was given a vision of hell. So, yes. And weren't the visionaries of Fatima? Yes. Given a vision of health by a lady herself? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I mentioned this, uh, I talked about um, just last night with my 13 with my year old son as he was going to bed. And I talked about um, you know, being careful of certain things because you're opening the door to um, the yes. devil. And he, yes. said, he said, Dad, you're starting to scare me. I said, Listen, you can be scared, but you still need to hear the message. The children of Fatima were younger than you. They saw hell. So. Right, right, right. May, before we end, yes. there's, a beautiful, there's a beautiful image here in my office of the last, uh, the last judgment in the Sistine Chapel that I purchased when I was a student priest. And it hangs in the conference area of my office. So every time I sit at the desk, I'm looking at it. Mm-hmm. And when you speak of justice and mercy, Everyone is familiar with the image. The Lord with his hand raised with a very stern face and Our Lady off to the side, Mm -hmm. uh, very supplicant. In my mind, that's the great mystery of justice and mercy. They are are intimately linked at judgment. And I'm hoping for mercy. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. So if, if you're listening and you have a question for Bishop Frank, Send it into questions at veritascatholic.com. And that makes another week for us, Bishop Frank. Thank you for your wisdom. Yeah, it's great and your to insight. be with you, Steve. Yeah, thank Just you. Keep and well. Thank- I'll talk to you soon. Oh, I want to um, very quickly before you run, I want to thank the Knights of Clemson Museum for sponsoring this program. Um, and uh, Father McGivney got the green light for the beatification last week. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, the Knights of Columbus Museum has been helping, let me be frank, bring solid Catholic content to you each week. So please check out kofcmuseum.org for more good content for your family. And Excellency, before we go, please give us your blessing. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you, shine his face upon you, and be merciful to you. May the Lord in his kindness grant you his blessings and peace. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Take care, Steve. See you soon. Thanks, excellent. Okay, goodbye.